All right. Psalm 23, of course, is probably one of the more familiar psalms to us, if not one of the most probably familiar passages of Scripture that we see hanging on plaques. We hear it read at funerals and uh, comes from the heart of David, who expresses these things really out of his own life experience, as he describes here how the Lord is his shepherd. Uh, We wonder whether David wrote these things potentially early on in his life, and that would have been the season in the earlier years of his life. We know that David functioned as a shepherd as he tended his father's flocks, and that was his occupation, being out in the fields and working as a shepherd with a, a flock or flocks of sheep. Or whether David, kind of reflecting back after you know many, many years, I think as well, it's very likely that uh, I can see David here as an older saint, as an older man, having had those experiences of being a shepherd, kind of looking back over his life and recognizing how the Lord was just such a good shepherd in his life, caring for him in so many ways. Uh, you know, it is interesting when you... Uh, look at Psalms 22, 23, and 24, uh, there are kind of very beautiful pictures of Jesus and how he, of course, John chapter 10 tells us that the Lord himself uh, proclaimed that he's our shepherd, our good shepherd, our Lord Jesus, and that we're his sheep and his flock. And uh, in Psalm 22, of course, we looked at Jesus as the crucified Savior. And so there we see Jesus, John 10, as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And then the Bible also tells us in the New Testament as well that Jesus is our our chief shepherd and the overseer of our souls. And so here in Psalm 23, we kind of see Jesus operating as our shepherd and and caring for us in that way, the way he shepherds us as a flock. And then ultimately, as you come to Psalm 24, you kind of see Jesus as well, kind of as this triumphant king returning in his second coming. So it's almost like Psalm 22 is Christ's ministry in the past, his suffering, his crucifixion, his death that provides us atonement for our sins. Psalm 23 is, if you would, sort of the present ministry of Jesus as he shepherds us now as his flock and and leads us and guides us as the good shepherd. And then, of course, Psalm 24 points to Jesus sort of returning for us at the end and coming back for us in his glorified form, coming back as that chief shepherd, that victorious king, ultimately coming back in his triumphal return back to the earth. But as David here describes in Psalm 23, this experience of the Lord as his shepherd, David no doubt was able to write these things from a great degree of understanding because, as we said, occupationally, that is what David did. David functioned as a shepherd, taking care of sheep. So uh, as David makes this statement, the Lord is my shepherd, understand that's also him in a simultaneous way admitting that he was like a sheep. Uh, and acknowledging this is what I'm like, David's saying. If the Lord's my shepherd, well, then David's indicating that I'm I'm basically like a sheep in regards to my condition spiritually and as a person. And again, if you do any little bit of research or have just a general acquaintance of animals, I mean, lions are known for you know being strong and ferocious and the king of the jungle and dominating and so forth. And then you have deers who are known for their speed and their agility. They're very sure-footed. And then you have sheep. 
Uh, and sheep really aren't known for much other than being rather defenseless, weak, uh, quite frankly, kind of somewhat unintelligent uh, in the way that they conduct themselves. You can find reports of occasions where entire flocks will literally walk off a, a cliff or an edge one after another because one goes off the cliff and they just foolishly follow one after another. And again, uh, sheep are incredibly needy and dependent. Uh, they're incredibly vulnerable and defenseless on their own. Um, they're, they're not very intelligent in their ability to take care of themselves. But sheep do better in two categories. When they're together as a flock, right? So that's important for sheep. Sheep flock together. Typically, when you have one sheep that's isolated from the flock, you know what that's called? Dinner. R- really, right? I mean, you, you watch, if you ever watch like the one of those Discovery Channel shows or something, isn't that exactly what the wolf or the predator does? They, they you know, they come in, they, they create a stir, and what they do is they, you know, as one sheep breaks off and makes himself vulnerable, that's then what the predator goes after. And so, again, when a sheep wanders from the flock, uh, it doesn't do well. Its safety, its protection, its ability to be able to function in the best health as well as in the most safe and productive way is for it to be together with the flock. They're social animals. That's how they're intended to function. It's a part of what keeps them in a right condition, as well as the sheep is incredibly dependent upon its shepherd. So uh, it's not dependent upon the strength of the sheep, the ability of the sheep to protect itself, the ability of the sheep to guide itself, to feed itself, to care for itself. Sheep are incredibly dependent upon a shepherd taking care of them. And to the degree that they depend upon their shepherd, they stay close to their shepherd, they receive from their shepherd, they allow their shepherd to guide them and to lead them. That's how sheep flourish and how they do well. And so as David's acknowledging this thing about himself, he's saying, this is what I'm like. I recognize about myself as a man and about my spiritual life. I'm like a sheep. You know, I I, I don't do too well on my own. I need the Lord's guidance. I need the Lord's provision. I need the Lord's protection. I need the Lord to, you know, to, to take care of me and I'm dependent upon him. And I need to be with the Lord's people, with the flock of God in order to be able to stay in that healthy and safe environment that God wants for me. So David here, as he acknowledges this, the Lord is my shepherd, he's recognizing these very things. And in the the, the psalm here, he really just alludes to the different ways he felt like he experienced the Lord being his shepherd. And the first thing he tells us in in verse 1 there, he says, the Lord is my shepherd, and because he is my shepherd, therefore in light of that, he says, I shall not want. The, the term there literally is, I shall not lack or I shall not be in need. And the idea there is because the Lord is a good shepherd, a, a, a good shepherd takes good care of his sheep, right? He, he makes sure they're well fed, they're well cared for. And so therefore, if you have a good shepherd, you don't have sheep who are weak and sickly and struggling and fearful and skittish. Uh, they live in a way whereby they're very content, uh, they're, they're very well cared for, and they don't look like, when you look upon them like, man, that, that flock's really hurt, and they have a negligent shepherd. And what he's saying is the Lord's a good shepherd. And that's exactly how Jesus described himself. Remember, Jesus said the thief comes to rob, kill, and destroy. 
in John 10, where he was talking about that same analogy of us being sheep and him being the good shepherd, he pictures the, the thief and the hireling who don't care about the sheep, and so they don't take very good care of them. And he said the thief only comes to rob, kill, and destroy, and that's exactly what Satan's agenda is for people's lives. But Jesus, being a good shepherd, he says, I've come that you may have life and that more abundantly. And when the Lord is our shepherd and we're allowing him to shepherd our life and we're letting him guide us and care for us and direct us and we're just living dependently upon him as our shepherd and letting him uh, have that place in our lives, it's amazing how you can begin to experience an abundant, contented life. As David says here, because the Lord is my shepherd, uh, I don't find myself wanting like I typically would or like most people do who don't know the Lord is their shepherd. Right? I mean, if you look at something that characterizes people who don't know the Lord, don't have a relationship with God, or even think about our own lives before we were in a relationship with God, what were we driven by? We wanted this. We wanted that. We desired this. And, and nothing ever satisfied, right? I mean, that's really, if you think about it, that is what our uh, you know, economy and marketing and everything commercialized is based upon is continuing to make people want want, 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 right? They, they know that's human nature. And, and, and even when you get something, they always come out with the next version a month later or the thing with the better bells and whistles. So even what you, when you get what you want, then they bring out something a little bit more exciting and then you want the next thing and nothing ever satisfies. There's you know a sense of discontentedness and a lack of unfulfillment. And a, a lot of that begins to go away when you have the Lord as your shepherd, because you begin to experience fulfillment from Jesus, you begin to experience an internal contentment, and you find yourself, it doesn't mean that you have everything, but what you begin to realize is, you know, when the Lord is my shepherd, I don't lack. There's really no lack in my life. I have what I need. I have sufficiently what's necessary. The Bible tells us that has been given to us everything we need for life and godliness, and that godliness with contentment is great gain. And you begin to experience that as you walk with the Lord. You're able to experience his contentment and fulfillment in such a way where you can say, you know, I, I really don't want. I honestly don't. I'm, I'm okay. I don't really want for anything. I don't have everything. But I really don't look at my life and say, man, I just, there's such a lack in my life. But instead, there's the idea of there's a sense of contentment and fulfillment and satisfaction. And that comes from the Lord and his place in our life. He goes on to then say, verse 2, is regarding the Lord being our shepherd, that he makes me to lie down in green pastures. And again, the green pastures are a picture of, you know, pasture areas, you know, fields and so forth that are green. The idea is that they have new grass, they have fresh grass. They're not areas that have been all devastated by, you know, overfeeding and by overgrazing. And again, this is something as well that any good shepherd understood is that the sheep needed continually to be moved from location to location to make sure they were always in places where there was fresh grass and fresh pasture in such a way whereby they didn't overgraze a particular territory. It was the job of the shepherd to continue to make sure there was provision available and that they were staying well fed. And here, this is kind of the analogy. It's a picture of God's provision, of God supplying what is necessary in such a way whereby we are fulfilled and we're able to be well fed you know that he leads me to lie down in the green pastures to experience peace and contentedness and and again what's interesting about sheep too is if sheep are not 
feeling secure, they will not lie down. They're very skittish animals. That's something that we know about them. They get, they get unnerved very easily. They're very easily spooked. And so for a sheep to be able to lie down, it has to be very well fed, feel very secure, and really have a sense of peace that comes from the care of the shepherd. And he's describing how the Lord takes care in that way. And he says, the Lord is able to make me lie down in green pastures. And it's interesting that the Lord makes me lie down. You know, he recognizes that we need a degree at time of rest and renewal. And isn't it interesting? David said, I found that sometimes the Lord doesn't just advise me to lie down. Sometimes the Lord makes me <laughs> lie down. Sometimes the Lord says, I'm going to make you lay down because you need to have a time of renewal, a time in a sense of detachment where you just rest and relax and, and know that you're being cared for and, and you're in the green pastures and being well taken care of. He says, verse two as well, that he leads me also by the still waters. He restores my soul and leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. So notice the Lord makes me lie down. And the David says twice here in verses two and three, the Lord also leads me. So there he speaks of the guidance of the shepherd, that that's part of the role of the Lord in our life. That as a good shepherd, he provides leadership to the flock. He directs the flock where they should go and, and guides them and provides direction for them. And, and he describes in verse two, how he leads me beside the still waters. And again, David would have that picture in his mind because sheep as well, won't drink from a water source if there's any degree of movement to the water, the water's turbulent. So typically a flowing brook or a river that was moving would be something that they would not be prone to drink from. Typically the shepherd needed to find for them still waters that were calm, those calm waters so that they could drink in what they needed, of course, to be able to be cared for. And he says, he leads me beside those Still waters, again, a picture of just these peaceful, calm waters and how the Lord does that in our life from time to time. You know, he he knows when it's necessary to lead us to a place, not only where we can lie down, but even potentially where we can just be still and where we can drink in what we need, where we can take in the refreshment by drinking in the waters. And again, in the word of God, I mean, the word of God, we see things pictured as water. We see, first of all, the scripture referred to as water. Paul speaks of the washing of the water of the word. And sometimes the Lord leads us to that place where we can drink in from the word of God and be able to receive what we need. And of course, water in the scripture is also symbolic many times of the ministry of the spirit. Remember Jesus said in John chapter seven, that you know, he who thirsts, let him come to me and, and drink. And he said, and out of his innermost being shall gush forth torrents of living water. And it says this, he spoke of the spirit. So again, at times the Lord will lead us to a place where it's still a place where we can be calm, where we can sort of have a time where we're stationary and, and we're just at a still place where we can drink in of the waters of the word of God and drink in the waters and refreshment of his spirit for a time to be renewed, even as the sheep would need that to be sustained and well cared for. He says, verse three, also that the Lord as his shepherd restores my soul. And perhaps here David's thinking about how one of the roles of the shepherd was a real continual ministry of restoration because sheep tended to do what? Wander, right? That's, that's what sheep do. They tend to wander away from the flock. 
They tend to get lost. They tend to deviate off and, and get away. And so many times part of the role of the shepherd was going out and finding a wandering sheep and restoring the sheep back to the fold or restoring the sheep back into a, a right place. In fact, sometimes it was even necessary if a sheep was prone to constant wandering and continuing to deviate and to turn off course and get away from the flock and the shepherd, at times the shepherd, if need be, would even go so far as to actually break the leg of one of the sheep to keep it from wandering. And after he would break the leg, he would then mend up the leg. And and then what he would then do is he then for the next four or five weeks until the leg would heal, he would actually drape the sheep around his shoulders and carry the sheep around his shoulders until the leg would heal. But the whole intention behind that was breaking the sheep. So in a sense, the sheep could experience the blessed experience of staying close to the shepherd and by being draped around and carried around the neck of the shepherd in such closeness and intimacy for day after day, week after week, it would break that rebellious wandering spell of the sheep. And it would kind of break the sheep from that habit of wandering. And so this was a way the shepherd at time would restore the sheep back into the flock or restore the sheep back into a right condition of relationship between himself and his shepherd. And here he refers to the Lord's work of restoration in our lives. And, you know, sometimes in our lives, uh, you know, we have the same struggles. Sometimes we can begin to wander spiritually. We can begin to deviate and get off track. Interesting that he speaks of the Lord here restoring our soul. And the soul in the Bible is always a reference to just the inward person. That is the mind, the will, the emotions, the inward life. And he says sometimes our inward life begins to get off track. You know, from time to time, we need the Lord to restore our minds. You know, our mindset gets wrong. Our minds begin to wander to places where they shouldn't be in our thoughts and our thinking patterns get really off track and they start going down trails and getting you know, engaged in things they shouldn't be. And, and we need the Lord to restore our minds and to do restorative work in our minds or maybe in our emotions or just the inward life. But how wonderful that the Lord graciously knows what it takes to restore our soul. And at times we need that restorative work in our soul. The inward life needs that restoration from the Lord. And he has an ability to do that as our good shepherd in our lives and to lead us instead. Notice, even though we perhaps have been wandering and we've had to be restored, he then leads me, David says, in the paths of righteousness. That is paths that are right or righteous. Those which would be in right relationship with God. And what would be that which is right for my life? And why does the Lord do it? He says, verse three, for his namesake. That is, he does it so that he would be recognized as a good shepherd. Because typically, if you looked at a flock of sheep and you saw their condition, that was a reflection of the shepherd, right? So if you looked at a flock of sheep and it was wounded and it looked all scruffy and, and just, you know, malnourished and sickly and ill, That was a reflection, not of the flock, it was a reflection of the care of the shepherd. And so for his namesake, the Lord wants to be a good shepherd in our lives and seeks to operate in the ways that he does so that he would be recognized as, you know what, hey, uh, the Lord is a good shepherd. uh, And so we ought to let him care for us and lead us and, and guide us and provide for us. And so oftentimes for his own sake and glory, he makes the, the good that he does in our lives for his own reputation for those who are looking upon him as our shepherd. 
David says, verse 4, speaking of the Lord's directing and guiding his life, he says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So here he just pictures how the, the shepherd would guide his flock through the hills and the valleys and the different areas throughout the area of Palestine, and time to time the shepherd would have to lead his flock down through a valley area to maybe take them up to another location where there was better ground for grazing, or maybe there were some still waters he went out and scouted and he found in another location. But in order to do that, to get the flock of sheep from this point to that point, he had to take them through a valley. And maybe it was a deep valley, or maybe it was a dark valley, but the shepherd in his own good judgment, not to harm the sheep, not to scare the sheep, not in any way to bring anything detrimental upon the sheep, determined that through his leadership and guidance and his care and protection, that it would be in the best interest of them in his judgment, not to go this way or that way, but to actually go through that valley and to have to descend and be in a valley for a time and in a dark place, which may be a little bit more difficult or you know uncomfortable, but that notice that he was leading them through the valley and he was with them and that they didn't have to fear, even as the shepherd guided them to the green pastures and the still waters and would restore them and lead them in paths of righteousness. Notice sometimes the paths of righteousness included having to walk through with their shepherd, walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Now, that doesn't sound like a, a fun place to be. The valley of the shadow of death. The, again, it's literally, the Hebrew literally means the valley of deepest darkness. That's what the language literally indicates. That, that at times, I have to walk through the valley of deepest darkness. Interesting, he calls it the shadow of death. I mean, you think about shadows even just, in a literal sense, can a shadow really harm you? It can't, right? We, we get spooked by shadows, right? You, when people see a shadow, that's something that may make people scared or nervous. They sh- Did I see a shadow? Did I see... Does that look like... And, and, and shadows scare people. They make them fearful. But shadows can't harm you. A shadow can't murder you. A shadow can't do anything detrimental to you. It's just a shadow. And interesting that he says that the, the valley of the shadow of deepest darkness. You know, something that may appear dangerous. It may appear scary. It may appear like something that is just very bad. This is, this is scary, this valley of deep darkness. But David says, I've learned to just, what does he say, verse four? He said, I've learned when I get led into those valleys of deepest darkness that the Lord is with me and my job is to do one thing, verse four, to walk through the valley. So what do you do when you get into the valley of deepest darkness? You don't stand there. You just keep walking. You just keep walking. So you don't stand there, freak out, get scared, overvaluate. The same shepherd that led you into the valley is going to ultimately lead you out of the valley. And all he asks of us is keep your eye on me and just keep walking. You walk through the valley. And so when you find yourself in a valley, that's what you do. You just keep walking through it until eventually, guess what happens if you walk through it? You come out the other side of it. And then eventually you get back to the green pastures and the still waters. But it's part of the shepherding and the guiding process. But David says, but I don't have to fear evil 
in those valleys very simply. Why? Because, Lord, you're with me. So, Lord, just like you were with me in the times when I was drinking at the still waters and laying down in the green pastures, Lord, you are with me in the valleys as well. And again, that's important for us to know that whether we see God's presence or sense God's presence, that he is a faithful shepherd who is with us, no matter whether on the mountaintop or in the valley of deepest darkness. And he says, it's your rod and your staff that comfort me. So again, the rod and the staff were instruments of the shepherd. The rod was typically the small club that the shepherd would use. And shepherds became very skillful with that rod. Many times that rod was used to either beat off wolves or other animals that would threaten the sheep, or at times they would even throw it uh, very skillfully to hit a predator to stop it from being able to attack a sheep. So this speaks of the defending of the shepherd that he protects. And the staff was typically that which the shepherd would use to walk, but it always usually had that kind of rounded kind of crook end if you look at the top of it. And that was intended to be used by the shepherd to just gently kind of, if a sheep would gradually wander, then they would just put it around the neck of the sheep. And all right, just, you know, before I have to go out and get you and break your leg and drape you over my neck, you know, I I just would kind of gently bring you back on course by using that staff. And and again, I like the picture there because in the hardest times, the Lord is going to protect me through them. He's my defense. He's going to shield me from destructive detrimental things and at the same time if i'm wandering and meandering and getting confused and freaking out in the dark the lord knows how to just kind of gently like okay just 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 keep walking here just come back over here and just keep walking he knows how to just kind of gently keep us moving forward and reminding us i'm here with you you don't have to fear because i'm with you and i'm walking and guiding you through this And if that weren't enough, David says, I've learned as well that he says, Lord, you prepare a table before me. Again, the picture there is just provision, supplying what is necessary. You prepare a table before me, and he says, and you do it right in the presence of my enemies. So again, typically, you're not going to sit down and have a feast with your enemies staring you down. It would seem like that would be a very vulnerable thing to do. But that was the level of security that David felt that the Lord supplied for him. He says, Lord, you you spread a table of blessing. Lord, you spread blessing in front of me and you do it right in the presence of my enemies. Uh, And they don't have the ability to overcome me because you are stronger and caring for me as my shepherd. And, And this is why David had the confidence that he did looking to the Lord. He goes on to speak more of the Lord's blessing in his life by saying in verse five, you anoint my head with oil and my cup runs over. So the picture there of the anointing of the head with oil. Again, this was a common thing that shepherds would do with their sheep. Many times they would rub oil on the heads of of their sheep and around their ears and so forth for multiple reasons. Uh, One, because sometimes if you had stubborn sheep uh, who were a little bit more contentious and rebellious, sometimes some of the male sheep were known as well to kind of butt heads Uh, And so sometimes the shepherd would actually put oil on their heads to minimize some of the friction uh, and the wounding. And so this was a way to kind of keep, you know, unity and to kind of ease the gears a little bit. When tension would happen among the flock, he would put oil on their heads to make them a little bit uh, better as far as not wounding each other so much. Uh, As well as at times he would put oil on their heads as a way to soothe their wounds to keep you know, bugs and insects and so forth from getting in their eyes and their ears. And of course, it was just to enhance the quality of the life of the sheep. 
And the Bible tells us that oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit again, and that the Lord puts an anointing upon our lives. You know, there's an anointing of the Spirit of God that he can put upon our head in a sense as a part of our lives as his sheep. And and that, that anointing of the Holy Spirit is to help us have a more enhanced experience as the Lord anoints our head with the oil and the power of his Holy Spirit. And he says, Lord, not only do you prepare a table and fill my cup, but look what he says, verse five, he says, and my cup runs over. You know, that's what we want, right? We want an overflowing cup. It's one thing to have the Lord fill your cup. But he says, Lord, you're not the kind of shepherd that just fills my cup. You're the kind of shepherd that blesses so much and is so good when you're taking care of me, says, Lord, my cup actually runs over. The overflowing cup, that's the picture there of the goodness and the care of our Lord. And David concludes by saying, surely goodness, that is the goodness of God, and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. So he pictures here kind of being pursued continually says it follows me all the days of my life the goodness of the lord and the mercy of the lord and what a wonderful thing that he says it's the lord's goodness and the mercy that keeps pursuing me all the days of my life that i can look back over all the days of my life and say you know what lord through all the days of my life your goodness was so evident you kept being good to me time after time and turn after turn and when i needed your mercy it was there again it was like every time i turned around (laughs) Every time I turned around, Lord, there's your mercy again. Lord, I wandered off. I did something dumb as a sheep again. What am I going to do? And I turn around and there's the mercy of God. As soon as you turn around, the mercy of God's been following you, just waiting for you to turn around. And already God's waiting for you with mercy. Or his goodness and blessing. Every time you turn around, it's his goodness pursuing your life actively. And he says, if that were not blessing enough, the Lord's goodness and mercy follows me all the days of my life. And then after that, I get heaven, he says. And then I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So if it's not only a blessing enough to enjoy the Lord as our shepherd, taking care of us in such a way where we don't sense lack and want and discontent in our life, but instead we find fulfillment. And he leads us into those green pastures of fulfillment and satisfaction and provision for us and he leads us at times by the still waters and restores our soul and he takes good care of us by guiding us and giving us direction so we stay in the paths of righteousness and takes us through the valleys and helps us as we walk through those valleys until we come out the other side and anoints our head with oil and makes our cup run over and his goodness and mercy and then david says and then after all that Then I get the best at the end. (laughs) Then I get to dwell in the house of the Lord literally forever and ever. And again, David, I think, as I said, could have been writing this as a young man, as he kind of thought through these things out in the field and saw how the Lord was like a shepherd as he tended to his own flock. Or as I said, as I read Psalm 23, the older I've gotten in my own life, you know, being at the stage where I'm at now, I think there's something about that it could be very likely David wrote it in his latter years looking back. And can you imagine, you know, as a middle aged or an older man, David writing this and these just being his life experiences and saying, Lord, yes, I've seen that. You have been my shepherd and you've guided me and taken care of me and how David could in a reflective way kind of think about God in that manner. So Psalm 23, we see the shepherding ministry of our Lord 
And then Psalm 24, we see Jesus like a triumphant king, in a sense, as I said, kind of tying up this triplet of these three Psalms. David begins in Psalm 24 by saying, the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and all who dwell therein. For he has founded upon the seas and established it upon the water. So here David speaks of the Lord, notice, as the the, the the owner of the universe, the one who owns all things, who has created all things, who is in control of all things. He said, everything on the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. That is everything that the earth brings forth, the, the fullness of the earth. Again, reminding us again as people that what are we? Nothing other than just stewards. We're just stewards. That everything on this earth is here because God created it. God set it into existence. God's its caretaker and he is its possessor and owner. And all we are is stewards and managers. We have no sense of entitlement. We just should have a sense of appreciation because he says there, not only the earth and it's, it's, but he says the world, notice, and all those who dwell therein. That is all people. All the people of the earth, you know, have breath in their lungs and their heart is beating because the world and even all the people within it belong to the Lord. And the sooner that we recognize that, the sooner that we acknowledge that, the really uh, sooner our life comes into the experience that God intends for us. You know, this reminds me of what ultimately uh, Psalm 100 is going to declare where there it says, make a joyful shout to the Lord, serve the Lord with gladness and come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, not we ourselves. And we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. In other words, that acknowledgement, our lives belong to God. They don't belong to us. And the sooner we come into that awareness, and more than that, the sooner, not just that awareness, but the sooner we come into that uh, you know, way of living, not just acknowledging that, but actually living that out. My life does not belong to me. It belongs to God. He is the owner and the possessor of my soul. He is the chief shepherd and overseer of our souls. The Bible says, Lord, the world and all who dwell in it belong to you. The sooner we begin to relate to God in that way, we begin to really experience what God intends for us, to live a life really that's intended foremost to serve and to glorify God. And that's where we begin to find the greatest fulfillment rather than taking our own paths and doing what we want as if our lives belong to us. David then begins to ask the question in verse three in regards to who can encounter and approach God. He said, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord. Now, there he's no doubt picturing the, the hill of Zion heading up into Jerusalem where the temple mount was and where the, the holy place and the holy of holies was. Because notice he says, who may ascend up into the hill of the Lord or who may stand in his holy place? So we ask the questions, who can approach God and, and or who can be in the presence of God? What does it require to approach God? What does God expect to be able to spend time in his presence. And then he answers, verse four, a life that's holy and pure and set apart for God. He says, verse four, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol nor sworn 
deceitfully. So what is God looking for? The person who can approach him, the person who can be in his presence and have fellowship with him in his holy place. He says, first of all, the person who has clean hands. Speaks of the external life. Again, that that our hands are not engaged or involved in something where there's bloodshed on our hands or there's, you know, we got dirty, crooked hands. The idea is that our hands are not engaged in things they should not be doing. Speaks of the outward life, our way of living, that we have clean hands. Lord, my hands are clean. They're not filthy. There's no guilt in regards to the things that I'm engaged in. My hand is not involved in things that it should not be involved in. That matters to God. But God doesn't just care about our outward way of living, that we have clean hands. Also notice verse 4, he says as well, he who has a pure heart. That is, God wants my inward life to be pure, that I have a pure and sincere inward life. Remember Jesus in the Beatitudes, one of the things he declared there, blessed is what the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That is, Jesus said, it is a blessed thing, or oh, how happy and blessed is the individual who has a pure heart, because then they're able to have a greater revelation to be able to see God in a clearer way. Again, I don't know about you. Do you want to see God more clearly? Do you want to know God more fully? Do you want to have deeper relationship with God? Well, God says, if your hands are involved in things they shouldn't be involved in, you need to get, you need to get your hands clean and let go of some of the filthy, inappropriate things that maybe your hands are engaged in and let go of some of those things because that's what we do sometimes, right? We get our hands involved in something or we hang on to something. And God's saying, what you got a hold of and you won't let go of, that's causing hindrance between you and I in relationship. You know, the Bible tells us later on, Psalm 66, I believe, is that if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord won't hear me. The word regard literally means to cherish or to value something as, as important. And what the Lord is basically saying is if you want to cherish or value or cling to something that is sinful, it says the, the Lord won't hear. The idea is, in a sense, the Lord kind of retracts himself and says, okay, if you want to hold on to that, rather than continue to have me hold your hand and guide your life, then, then in a sense, I'm going to retract from, from being in right relationship with you. And again, it doesn't say that the Lord you know, is unable to hear what we're praying, but the idea is almost as if kind of God just retreats and goes into silent mode. And he says, you can ask everything you want, but until that sin in your life becomes something that you're willing to let go and fully take hold of me and let me help you, God's just saying you're creating a breach in our relationship. And, and really, I think what God is reminding us of the reality is, is that sometimes that decision is in our hands. The hand of God's always extended to us. God wants fellowship. We know that. He's always ready to forgive. He wants to give us power to overcome. But the problem is, is sometimes our hands aren't clean because we want to hold on to things. And God wants us to let go of things from time to time if they become a hindrance between him and our fellowship with him. And he wants our hearts to be pure, again, that we wouldn't have polluted hearts. Our inward life wouldn't be defiled, that we'd be sincere and have integrity and pure hearts that we can see God clearly. In such a way, notice verse 4, he says that the person who's not lifted up their soul, that is their inward devotion, to an idol, making something, anything, more important than God. That's what idolatry is. And our soul can be lifted up to an idol in such a way, nor swore, he says, the person who's sworn deceitfully. And then verse five, David indicates 
The person who has clean hands and a pure heart and isn't lifting up their soul to an idol or living deceitfully or being dishonest, he says, that person shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Now, I don't know about you, that's pretty appealing to me. I'd like to receive blessing from the Lord. And he's saying, look, God wants to bless a life that's lived that way. So if you keep your hands clean, you don't let yourself get engaged in things and hold on to things you shouldn't be involved in, and you keep your heart pure before the Lord, and you don't let other things become idols in your life before the Lord, God says that's going to bring a blessed life. You're going to have a blessed experience. He says that person shall receive blessing from the Lord. God almost quantifies there. Do you want to receive blessing? Do these things. You do these things and you'll receive blessing. You'll receive a blessed life and the blessings of God will be upon your life as well as receiving as a gift and a blessing from the Lord, the righteous standing that comes to us from the God of our salvation. That's one of the greatest blessings we receive when we're in right relationship with the Lord. He gives us his righteousness as the God of our salvation to be in right standing with him. He says, verse six, and this is Jacob the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. I love that statement, the generation of those who seek the Lord. That's what God's looking for. God is looking for a a people. Jacob is a representation, of course, of Israel. He's looking for a people, a community, a, a nation, a generation of those who will seek him. That's what God's longing for. God's longing for a generation of people who really want to seek God and seek the face of God to know him more deeply. And, and here David says, Selah, or, or think about these things. Meditate upon them, consider them, whether or not you deem them to be true or not. And then as he comes to verses 7 through 10, it's almost as if he concludes the psalm with his triumphant picture. Again, as I said, of Jesus like a victorious king. He says, lift up your heads, O you gates, And be lifted up, you, and notice, you everlasting doors. That's interesting, everlasting doors. Uh, Typically, gates of a city uh, and doors of a city that open up to a city, uh, they would be temporal. They wouldn't last forever. So perhaps as David's saying these things here under the leading of the Holy Spirit, again, he's speaking prophetically of something that's yet still to come. That is the gates being opened, the everlasting doors being opened, perhaps speaking of the kingdom age when Christ will return and come through the eastern gate and set up there uh, in Jerusalem his throne and rule and reign for a thousand years during the kingdom age. Perhaps David is speaking of kind of the return of Christ as he comes back and the, the welcoming of their opening of the, the topography in the land, actually embracing Christ as the king. As he returns. So notice, be lifted up, you everlasting doors. Open the, the, the doors to who? And the king of glory shall come in. Then he asks, who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Again, picturing this king as a king of, of great renown, of glory. A king, notice, which is strong, powerful, mighty, a king that has been victorious. He says, a king who is mighty in battle. And of course, we know that's exactly how Jesus is going to come back in his return. Jesus came the first time as a humble, suffering servant, right? As a good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. But the Bible pictures Jesus coming back a second time 
in his glorified form as a king of glory, as a mighty warrior coming back. Revelation 19 describes him riding triumphantly, coming through the air with the armies of heaven with him, coming back to touch down upon the earth, to overthrow the Antichrist, the false prophet, those who've turned against the Lord and establishing his kingdom and ruling and reigning. And perhaps David here speaking in a picturesque way of this triumphant return of the Lord. Who is this king of glory? He says, it's the Lord strong and mighty, mighty in battle. He again repeats the refrain, lift up your heads, O you gates, lift up you everlasting doors and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? He says, the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. And again, David says, Selah, or think about that. Consider that. Ponder that this same, again, if we reflect back, Psalm 22, Psalm 23, Psalm 24, that this same king of glory in Psalm 22 as a king of glory gave up all of, in a sense, his glory and his power and his incredible love for us to come and to allow himself to be treated like, what did Psalm 22 say? I'm like a worm, a despicable worm that's crushed and stepped upon and despised, a lowly worm, and he allowed himself to be surrounded by dogs and mockery and spiritual forces, and it says that he was pierced that he was crucified and he suffered greatly as, as, as a humble king who had so much power as the king of glory. And then Psalm 23, that this king of glory takes the most lowly occupation in that day that you could take in Israel, right? People despised shepherds. Being a shepherd was not a glamorous job in the days of ancient Israel. You have to understand that. Remember, that was the whole reason more than likely why when Jesus' birth was announced to the shepherds in the fields, that was going to be quite a quandary because shepherds were known to be those who kind of seemed to be kind of like kind of shady and they're always out in the fields and they're with their flocks and, you know, they're probably stealing from people. So shepherds didn't have good reputations. People didn't aspire to want to be a shepherd in those days in Israel. But what does Jesus do? He comes back and, and, and he, he, he lives among the people of God and he functions among us for 33 and a half years before he allowed himself to be crucified as a shepherd. And then he dies, lays down his life for the sheep as a good shepherd. And then now in the, the realm of the spirit, being alive, he serves now in a shepherding ministry as we live as his flock, as the flock of God. And Jesus shepherds us and guides us. He's the chief shepherd and the overseer of our souls taking good care of us, but ultimately Jesus is going to come back in all of his power, in all of his glory, and establish his rule and his reign over all things. And David says, you know what? We should take some time once in a while to think about that. Because when he comes back the second time, he's going to be one bad hombre. <laughs> he's not coming back as a humble suffering servant or as a lowly shepherd who takes care of a flock of sheep patiently, mercifully dealing with these defenseless, dumb, foolish, mistake-laden, weak, skittish sheep. He's, not, he's going to come back as a king in power, 
and in all of his glory, mighty in battle, and all the enemies of God and things that stand in opposition to God and God's ways. When Jesus comes back, he's going to come back and with the power of God and his glory, with a rod of iron, he is going to rule and reign, and he is going to put an end to everything that opposes what is good and right. And he's going to establish his reign upon the earth. And, you know, it's almost as if David says, you know what? Sometimes it's good to think about that, that our king is the king of glory, strong and mighty. And, you know, it's interesting as he talks about here, opening up the gates and and opening up the doors, he says, because if you open up the gates and you open up the doors, he says, verse nine, the king of glory shall come in. You know, I think in some ways, we should consider that in regards to Jesus because that's what we have the opportunity to do is we have the opportunity to open the door of our hearts and think about it. And the King of glory, Christ, the glorified Christ comes in. If we open the door of our heart to him, if any person calls upon the name of the Lord, Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door, right? And knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens what? the door. I'll come in. And what an amazing thing that we can open the doorway of our life and say, Lord, come in. Come in as the king of glory and bring a greater power and strength and a greater work of the glory of God in my life because I want more of that. So Lord, I'm opening the doors up so that you'd come in. Come in to a greater degree, Lord. Take over. Rule and reign now. You're going to rule and reign one day anyway. Lord, rule and reign now. Set up your throne here right now in my heart and rule and reign over me. Why don't we stand together?